Welcome to Celebrate Poe, a deep dive into the life, times, works, and influences of America's Shakespeare, Edgar Allan Poe. I have the first part of a great ghost story for you today. I went through what seemed like hundreds of British ghost stories and thought I would never find what I wanted, a story that was really powerful, descriptive, and quite creepy, and most importantly, builds in intensity like a good ghost story should. Then I ran across The Phantom Coach, and after a few paragraphs, I knew that this was the one, a ghost story that works on so many levels. I think you'll enjoy it, too. Today's story is part of the English tradition of Christmas ghost stories. It is not necessarily about Christmas, though snow plays an important part in the tale. The falling snow almost becomes another character in the story. The Phantom Coach was written by Amelia Edwards. She was an extremely talented and highly respected writer in 19th century Britain. During the latter part of her life, Amelia Edwards traveled to Egypt and became an expert in Egyptology. She died in 1892 and is buried beside her partner of 30 years, Ellen Drew Brasher. In 2016, Historic Britain designated her grave as a landmark in British LBGT history. This is the first part of The Phantom Coach and is about 20 minutes long. I will release its conclusion tomorrow. Oh, oh and before, uh, before I start, uh, Mr. Poe will not be here today for this story, but he told me he is very eager to be here on December the 30th and December the 31st to read two H.P. Lovecraft tales. The Phantom Coach by Amelia Edwards The circumstances I am about to relate to you have truth to recommend them. They happened to myself, and my recollection of them is as vivid as if they had taken place only yesterday. Twenty years, however, have gone by since that night. During those twenty years, I have told the story uh, to but one other person. I tell it now with a reluctance which I find difficult to overcome. All I entreat, meanwhile, is that you will abstain from forcing your own conclusions upon me. I want nothing explained away. I desire no arguments. My mind on this subject is quite made up, and having the testimony of my own senses to rely upon, I prefer to abide by it. Well, it was just 20 years ago, and within a day or two of the end of the grouse season, I had been out all day with my gun and had no sport to speak of. The wind was due east, the month December, the place a bleak wide moor on the far end of England, and I had lost my way. It was not a pleasant place in which to lose one's way, with the first feathery flakes of a coming snowstorm just fluttering down upon the heather, and the leaden evening closing in all around. I shaded my eyes with my hand and stalled anxiously into the gathering darkness, where the purple moorland melted into a range of low hills, some ten or twelve miles distant. Not the faintest smoke wreath. Not the tiniest cultivated patch or fence or sheep track met my eyes in any direction. There was nothing for it but to walk on and take my chance of finding what shelter I could by the way. So I shouldered my gun again and pushed wearily forward, 
for I had been on foot since an hour after daybreak and had eaten nothing since breakfast. Meanwhile, the snow began to come down with ominous steadiness and the wind fell. After this, the cold became more intense and the night came rapidly up. As for me, my prospects darkened with the darkening sky, and my heart grew heavy as I thought how my young wife was already watching for me through the window of our little inn parlor and thought of all the suffering in store for her throughout this weary night. We had been married four months, and having spent our autumn in the highlands, were now lodging in a remote little village situated just on the verge of the great English moorlands. We were very much in love and, of course, very happy. This morning, when we parted, she had implored me to return before dusk, and I had promised her that I would. What would I not have given to have kept my word? Even now, weary as I was, I felt that with a supper, an hour's rest, and a guide, I might still get back to her before midnight, if only guide and shelter could be found. And all this time, the snow fell and the night thickened. I stopped and shouted every now and then, but my shouts seemed only to make the silence deeper. Then a vague sense of uneasiness came upon me, and I began to remember stories of travelers who had walked on and on and on in the falling snow until, wearied out, they were fain to lie down and sleep their lives away. Would it be possible, I asked myself, to keep on thus through all the dark night? Would there not come a time when my limbs must fail and my resolution give way? When I, too, must sleep the sleep of death? Death, I shuddered. How hard to die just now, when life lay all so bright before me. How hard for my darling, whose whole loving heart, but that thought was, was not to be born. To banish it, I shouted again, louder and longer, and then listened eagerly. Was my shout answered, or did I only fancy that I heard a far-off cry? I hollered again, and again the echo followed. Then a wavering speck of light came suddenly out of the dark, shifting, disappearing, growing momentarily nearer and brighter. Running towards it at full speed, I found myself to my great joy face to face with an old man and a lantern. Thank God was the exclamation that burst involuntarily from my lips. Blinking and frowning, the old man lifted his lantern and peered into my face. What for? growled he sulkily. Well, well, for you, I began to fear I should be lost in the snow. Aye, then, folks do get cast away or abouts from time to time, and what's to hinder you from being cast away likewise, if the Lord's so minded? If the Lord is so minded that you and I should be lost together, friend, we must submit, I replied, but I don't mean to be lost without you. How far am I now from uh, dwelling? A guide, twenty mile, more or less. And the nearest village, I... I the nearest village is weak, and uh, that's uh, twelve miles to the other side. Uh, where do you live, then? Out yonder, said he, with a vague jerk of the lantern. You're going home, I presume. Maybe I am. 
Then I'm going with you. The old man shook his lantern and rubbed his nose reflectively with the handle of the lantern. It ain't no use, growled he. He ain't gonna let you in, nor he. We'll see about that, I replied briskly. Who is he? The master. Who is the master? That's not to you, was the unceremonious reply. Well, well, you lead the way, and I'll engage that the master shall give me shelter and a supper tonight. Hey, you can try him, muttered my reluctant guide, and still shaking his head, he hobbled gnome-like away through the falling snow. A large mass loomed up presently out of the darkness, and a huge dog rushed out, barking furiously. Is this the house, I asked? Aye, it's the house. Down, boy! And he fumbled in his pocket for the key. I drew up close behind him, prepared to lose no chance of entrance, and saw in the little circle of light shed by the lantern that the door was heavily studded with iron nails, like the door of a prison. In another minute, he had turned the key, and I had pushed past him into the house. Once inside, I looked round with curiosity, and found myself in a great raftered hall, which served, apparently, a variety of uses. One end was piled to the roof with corn, like a barn. The other was stored with flour sacks, agricultural implements, casks, and all kinds of miscellaneous lumber while from the beams overhead hung rows of hams, flitches, and bunches of dried herbs for winter use. In the center of the floor stood some huge object gauntly dressed in a dingy wrapping cloth and reaching halfway to the rafters. Lifting a corner of this cloth, I saw to my surprise a telescope of very considerable size mounted on a rude movable platform with four small wheels. The tube was made of painted wood, bound round with bands of metal rudely fashioned. The speculum, so far as I could estimate its size in the dim light, measured at least 15 inches in diameter. While I was yet examining the instrument and asking myself whether it was not the work of some self-taught optician, a bell rang sharply. "'That's for you,' said my guide with a malicious grin. "'Yonder's his room.' He pointed to a low black door at the opposite side of the hall. I crossed over, rapped somewhat loudly, and went in without waiting for an invitation. A huge, white-haired old man rose from a table covered with books and papers and confronted me sternly. "'Who are you?' said he. How come you here? What do you want? Uh, A James Murray, barrister at law, on foot across the moor, meet, drink, and sleep. He bent his bushy brows into a portentous frown. Mine is not a house of entertainment, he said haughtily. Jacob, how dare you admit this stranger? I didn't admit him, grumbled the old man. He followed me over the moor and shouldered his way in before me. I'm no match for six foot two. And pray, sir, by what right have you forced an entrance into my house? 
the same by which I should have clung to your boat if I were drowning, the right of self-preservation. Self-preservation? There's an inch of snow on the ground already, I replied briefly, and it would be deep enough to cover my body before daybreak. He strode to the window, pulled aside a heavy black curtain, and looked out. It is true, he said. Uh, You can stay, if you choose, till morning. Jacob, serve the supper. With this, he waved me to a seat, resumed his own, and became at once absorbed in the studies from which I had disturbed him. I placed my gun in a corner, drew a chair to the heath, and examined my quarters at leisure. Smaller and less in Congress in its arrangements than the hall, this room contained, nevertheless, much to awaken my curiosity. The floor was carpetless. The white-washed walls were in parts scrawled over with strange diagrams and in others covered with shelves crowned with philosophical instruments, the uses of many of which were unknown to me. On one side of the fireplace stood a bookcase filled with dingy folios. On the other, a small organ, fantastically decorated with uh, painted carvings of medieval saints and devils. Through the half-open door of a cupboard at the further end of the room, I saw a long array of geological specimens, surgical preparations, crucibles, retorts, and jars of chemicals, while on the mantel shelf beside me, amid a number of small objects, stood a model of the solar system, a small galvanic battery, and a microscope. Every chair had its burden. Every corner was heaped high with books. The very floor was littered over with maps, casts, papers, tracings, and learned lumber of all conceivable kinds. I stared about me with an amazement increased by every fresh object upon which my eyes chanced to rest. So strange a room I had never seen, yet still it stranger seemed to find such a room in a lone farmhouse amid those wild and solitary moors. Over and over again, I looked from my host to his surroundings and from his surroundings back to my host, asking myself who and what could he be. His head was singularly fine, but it was more the head of a poet than a philosopher. Broad in the temples, prominent over the eyes, and clothed with, clothed with a rough profusion of perfectly white hair, it had all the ideality and much of the ruggedness that characterizes the head of von Beethoven. There were the same deep lines about the mouth and the same stern furrows in the brown. There was the same concentration of expression. When I was yet observing him, the door opened and Jacob brought in the supper. His master then closed his book, rose, and with more courtesy of manner than he had yet shown, invited me to the table. A dish of ham and eggs, a loaf of brown bread, and a bottle of admirable sherry were placed before me. I have but the homeliest farmhouse fare to offer you, said my entertainer. Your appetite, I trust, will make up for the deficiencies of our larder. I had already fallen upon the foods and now protested with the enthusiasm of a starving sportsman that I had never eaten anything so delicious. 
He bowed stiffly and sat down to his own supper, which consisted primitively of a jug of milk and a basin of porridge. We ate in silence, and when we had done, Jacob removed the tray. I then drew my chair back to the fireside. My host, somewhat to my surprise, did the same thing, and turning abruptly towards me said, "'Sir, I have lived here in strict retirement for three and twenty years. During that time I have not seen as many strange faces, and I have not read a single newspaper.'" You are the first stranger who has crossed my threshold for more than four years. Will you favor me with a few words of information respecting that outer world from which I have parted company so long? Uh, Pray interrogate me, I replied. I I am heartily at your service. He bent his head in acknowledgment, leaned forward with his elbows resting on his knees, and his chin supported in the palms of his hands, stared fixedly into the fire and proceeded to question me. His inquiries related chiefly to scientific matters, with the latter progress of which, as applied to the practical purposes of life, he was almost wholly unacquainted. No student of science myself, I replied as well as my uh, slight information permitted, but uh, the task was far from easy, and I was much relieved when, passing from interrogation to discussion, he began pouring forth his own conclusions upon the facts which I had been attempting to place before him. He talked, and I listened spellbound. He talked till I believe he almost forgot my presence and only thought aloud. I had never heard anything like it, never like anything like it then, and I have never heard anything like it since. Familiar with all systems of all philosophies, subtle in analysis, bold in generalization, he poured forth his thoughts in an uninterrupted stream, and still leaning forward in the same moody attitude with his eyes fixed upon the fire, wandered from topic to topic, from speculation to speculation, like an inspired dreamer, from practical science to mental philosophy, from electricity in the wire to electricity in the nerve, from Watts to Mesmer, from Mesmer to Reichenbach, from Reichenbach to Swedenborg, Spinoza, Descartes, Berkeley, Aristotle, Plato, and the Magi and mystics of the East. They were trans- transitions which, which, however bewildering in their variety and scope, seemed easy and harmonious upon his lips as sequences in music. By and by, I forget now by what link of conjecture or illustration, he passed on to that field which lies beyond the boundary line, the boundary line of even conjectural philosophy, and reaches no man knows whither. He spoke of the soul and its aspirations, of the spirit and its powers, of second sight of prophecy, of those phenomena which under the names of ghosts, specters, and supernatural appearances have been denied by the skeptics and attested by the credulous of all ages. The world, he said, grows hourly more and more skeptical of all that lies beyond its own narrow radius, and our men of science foster the fatal tendency." 
They condemn us as fable, all that resist experiment. They reject as false all that cannot be brought to the test of the laboratory or the dissecting room. Against what superstition have they waged so long an obstinate a war as against the belief in apparitions? And yet what superstition has maintained its hold upon the minds of men so long and so firmly? Show me any fact in physics, in history, in archaeology, which is supported by the testimony so wide and so various, attested by all races of men, in all ages, and in all climates, by the soberest sages of antiquity, by the rudest savage of today, by the Christian, the pagan, the pantheist, the materialist. This phenomena is treated as a nursery tale by the philosophers of our country." Circumstantial evidence weighs with them as a feather in the balance. The comparison of causes with effects, however valuable in physical science, is put aside as worthless and unreliable. The evidence of competent witnesses, however conclusive in a court of justice, counts for nothing. He who pauses before he pronounces is condemned as a trifer. He who believes is a dreamer or a fool. He spoke with bitterness, and having said thus, relapsed for some minutes into silence. Presently, he raised his head from his hands and added with an altered voice and manner, I, sir, I paused, investigated, believed, and was not ashamed to state my convictions to the world. I, too, was branded as a visionary, held up to ridicule by my contemporaries, and hooted from that field of science in which I had labored with honor during all the best years of my life. These things happened just three and twenty years ago. Since then, I have lived as you see me living now, and the world has forgotten me, as I have forgotten the world. You have my history." It is a very sad one, I murmured, scarcely knowing what to answer. It is a very common one, he replied. I have only suffered for the truth, as many a better and wiser man has suffered before me. He rose as if desirous of ending the conversation and went over to the window. Now, part one of The Phantom Coach has set the scene, even without you knowing it. And it may not even seem like much has happened. But part one tells how the hero finds himself 20 miles in a hard-to-reach home during a snowstorm, and we're introduced to the character of the old man in his search for knowledge, both concrete as well as supernatural. Tomorrow is the conclusion of the story, and is when the really good part starts. Uh, now, check out the uh, Celebrate Poe website at uh, CelebratePoe, all one word, dot buzzsprout.com and click on the title of this episode for show notes and a transcript. And note the cover art for this episode, a uh, antique photograph of Amelia Edwards. Now, that website again is CelebratePoe.BuzzSprout.com. And uh, here's the remaining schedule for holiday stories in this podcast series. A Tuesday, December the 29th, Episode 20, The Phantom Coach Part 2. Wednesday, December the 30th, Episode 21, Dagon by H.P. Lovecraft. 
Thursday, December the 31st, episode 22. The Outsider, also by H.P. Lovecraft. And this episode ends with some New Year's thoughts. And then Friday, January the 1st, episode 23. It's another regular episode of Celebrate Poe with a fascinating look at uh, my hometown, Stanton, Virginia, and some of the occasions that the Allens visited Stanton with little Edgar. The second part of the episodes on Stanton will go online Monday, January the 4th, and you won't want to miss it. I talk about uh, the individual born in Stanton who may very well have had the most positive effect on our world of any person alive. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe, and join us for part two of The Phantom Coach.